Let's open up our Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 9. We've got this great little section here, which really begins and sets the stage for what we find in Acts chapter 10, and we'll look at that in just a moment. Acts chapter 9, verse 32 through the end of the chapter. If you're able, would you stand with me as I read the Word of God? Heavenly Father, I ask that you would come upon us, open our eyes and our hearts by the power of the Spirit, and give us understanding that we might see how we are to live because of what you have done and how you have granted us this grace and power. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Acts chapter 9, verse 32 and following. Now it came about that as Peter was traveling through all those parts, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And immediately he arose. And all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now in Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it came about at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, entreating him, Do not delay to come to us. And Peter rose and went with them, and when he had come, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all their tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up, and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And it came about that he stayed many days in Joppa with a certain tanner named Simon. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. I have this uh, great new translation I'd like to read from this morning. It came about, I was looking for something in my office and I I found it and uh, I just want to read a little bit to you um, just so you get a a glimpse of what, what we're going to talk about here in a little bit. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. This taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. We probably know this. This is a passage from Matthew. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. 
When eight days were accomplished for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus. Sound familiar? Kind of, doesn't it? What, what do we leave out? Oh, like the visiting angels and the wise men and the shepherds and the singing of the angels and everything that would be considered to be miraculous. Do you know what Bible this is? This is the Jefferson Bible. Okay? Some of you knew that. You see how massive it is. See, see how massive it is? Okay? It fits. This is the kind. It fits in your coat pocket. Uh, somebody gave me this Bible. Um, Roy Myers. I think he was a retiring minister and he was, you know, emptying his shelves and he gave this to me. And I thought, oh, Thomas Jefferson has his own translation. No, it's not really a translation. It is a picking and choosing of what he thinks ought to have been in the Bible. And what he thinks, ought, what he thought ought to have been in the Bible is everything except the supernatural. Everything except the miraculous. Everything except that which demonstrates God's awesome power in the world. No virgin birth, just the birth of Jesus by Mary. No visiting of the angels. And, and I just read, you know, the opening section. It goes on and on. It is devoid of the supernatural. Devoid of the awesome power of our Heavenly Father. So when you take the miraculous out of Scripture, when you take the miraculous out of what the Lord does in this world, this is all that you're left with. Okay? There you go. There you go. Now, now this is just New Testament, so uh, let, me, let me give you a good idea of it. Uh-huh. It's about a tenth of the size of the New Testament, I guess. When you reduce the New Testament to the unmiraculous, that's what you get. Now, why is this so important? You'll see how important this is in our passage today as we deal with something that is really dropped in here, which appears to be for no reason, but yet it has great reason and great purpose. Okay? This is a book, and that's all that it is. It's a book that sits on my shelf, and I pull it out every once in a while just to make this point. This is a book that just happens to be God's Word. These are words. This is the Word. This is powerless. This is power of God unto salvation. You can declare and read these things and go, oh, that's cool, and put it down and walk away. But when the Lord moves in your heart and you read these things, you are forever changed. This is the power of God. So let's go to our passage today in Acts chapter 9 and see what is happening here and why if we pitch out the supernatural, there's a big problem with that. Now we had just had the story of Paul's conversion or Saul's conversion in the previous or the beginning of this chapter and we don't pick up with Saul or Paul again until Acts chapter 13. Really Acts chapter 1 through chapter 12 is about Peter. Acts chapter 13 to the end really focuses upon Paul. Now I understand it's about Jesus and the growth of the church but the main character 
in the first half is Peter, the main character in the second half is Paul. And although Paul is called to be the apostle to the Gentiles, Peter gets a call to that end too, but that's kind of like the secondary call in his life. His main focus is to the Jews, but his sidetrack is to the Gentiles, and we'll see that, what I'm talking about, in just a moment. The last time we heard about Peter was when Saul made his journey to Jerusalem, and that is laid out for us in Galatians chapter 1. We won't go there, but that is when uh, Paul talks about having gone to Jerusalem after his conversion. He spends time with Peter and James the Lord's brother, and now for a reason we're, we're not told, but we can summarize, Peter is on the move. Now, Jesus made it very clear that, you're, that we are to take the, the, the gospel into uh, all the world, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. It seems that only Peter is on the move right now. Uh, now, the other apostles might be doing it as well, but Peter is the only one listed who has hit the road and is taking the gospel out into these areas. Places like Joppa, Caesarea, uh, Lydda, these places specifically where there are a lot of Gentiles. Now that's not his purpose as of yet, but we see that this is a, uh, this is a mixture of an area. It's very eclectic. Yes, there's a high Jewish population, but there are also a lot of Gentiles in these places as well. So he's out visiting some of the Jewish communities, and the Gentiles are hearing the gospel as well. Uh, he is sent from the people in Jerusalem just to check up on these outlying areas to make sure that the gospel is being preached correctly there. So... Peter arrives in Lydda, about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem, and it's at the intersection, it's an important place because it's at the intersection of the north-south road that runs from Egypt up into Syria, and then the road that goes from Jerusalem to the Mediterranean Sea runs through Joppa there. Uh, today it would be called Tel Aviv, okay, so that's the geographic place that we're talking about, Tel Aviv. Now go to chapter 9. Um, <clears throat> Verse 32, now it came about that as Peter was traveling through all those parts, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. Now, the saints are the word for every believer. Now, some of us um, are more saintly. We have greater saints, if we want to put it in human terms, uh, amongst us than others. Uh, some of us are hoping to attain to that level of saintness. Um, there is no verb in form for uh, holiness in the Greek or even in the, the, the English. So we call that sanctification. We are in the process of being sanctified and growing in holiness in the things of the Lord. So he calls them saints. There are those who belong to Christ, who live in Lydda, who are growing in the things of the Lord. And there he meets a man who's been sick for eight years, bedridden for eight years. Now, Peter is just walking through this place. There is no preparation. There is no herald that Peter is coming yet. Remember, he's, he's, he'll make that trip down to see uh, Tabitha in, in a little bit. But here he is just walking through Lydda and comes across a guy who's been on his bed for eight years. He is paralyzed. And what does he say? No buildup, no discussion, no building a bridge to him and, and building a relationship. He just walks up to him and in verse 34, Aeneas Jesus Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And what happened? He gets up. T to live in the New Testament times and to see that. 
Okay, I've never seen somebody healed like that today. The Lord may do that, but I've never seen it. I've seen people healed in, in different ways and over time and, and unexplained things happen, but I have never walked up to somebody or been uh, privy to somebody who just walks up and says, Jesus Christ heals you, get up. And after eight years lying on the bed, now what happens, all of you who have been sick, you understand. You lay in the bed for four or five days, what happens? Uh, you just start to become one with the bed, okay? Your muscles begin to atrophy a little bit. Think of eight years of not using your legs. What would they have been like? Legs that, I won't show you mine, but legs that once were like mine just look like your arms. That muscle has deteriorated, and in an instant it is regenerated. Not as if he didn't walk yesterday and it was only one day, but he had no muscle tone. His tendons his ligaments, all those things. Think of all that being instantly healed and restored. Bam, and it happens. Now, in Mark chapter 2, there's this uh, similar instance where Jesus is preaching, and they have to make a hole in the roof and, and lower the guy down, and he's been par paralyzed for years. And Jesus said, which is easier, to forgive your sins, to say you forgive your sins, or to heal them, so that you understand the Son of Man has the ability to forgive sins. I say, pick up your mat and walk, and the guy does it just like that, okay? He does it just like that. Look again at 34, and uh, we get the idea that maybe Peter is a, a little bit of a neat freak here. An Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, arise and make your bed, okay? <laughs> I hear my mother's voice, make your bed, Randall, okay? Get up and walk, and it happens in an instant just like that. Now, Peter does not say, get up. He does not say, I heal you. He does not say, in the name of Jesus, I heal you. He says, Jesus Christ heals you. Peter is simply the vehicle to come to this man's life and to declare the healing power that comes upon him. Get up and take care of your mat. It's an instantaneous. It is a full recovery, and he immediately gets up. And what is the result of this miraculous event? The result of this miraculous event, verse 35. And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. If we look at um, the, the combination of the effective preaching of the gospel and the miraculous events in the book of Acts, it's about 50% of the time that the effective preaching of the gospel is accompanied by a miracle. Okay, And if you have your, your homework notes, you can see the references there where the preaching of the gospel is accompanied by healings. So it's not necessary that they go together. But sometimes the Lord, in His sovereign and perfect providence, decides that we are going to do that. Here's the preaching of the gospel. It's in an area that probably they've never heard it before or there's a specific purpose that the Lord has. So he includes, in a sense, a miracle with it to confirm the power of the gospel, not just to change lives, which is pretty good, but also to restore. Now we see, I think it is, it's in John, where Jesus says, blessed are those who see and believe, but what? More blessed are those who do not see and believe. So we think, well, if I'm standing next to the guy and he, I know that he's been there for eight years and I see him get up and walk, it's going to be tough to deny the power that is accompanying 
the spread of the gospel. Okay? But if I don't see that, if I just hear the gospel and my life has changed, Jesus Christ says, more blessed am I by not seeing and yet believing. Now, we need to avoid the two extremes. Like, well, you have to have miracles if you're going to present the gospel. You don't have to have miracles to present the gospel. It is a miracle unto itself. It is the power of God unto salvation. But sometimes the Lord does confirm the spread of the gospel with the miraculous. Now, if we look through the New Testament, there are only five people who are raised from the dead, not counting Jesus. But Jesus raises three of them, Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain's son, and Lazarus. We see Paul will raise somebody from the dead. Um, uh, Eutychus, who had been watching a, a very extended football game, it went on for hours and hours, and he fell asleep in the middle of it. No, it was a sermon, okay? He fell asleep in a sermon. I can't believe that, okay? But Paul is going on and on, and really he goes on most of the night teaching, and Eutychus is sitting in the window, and, okay, I can get the idea. He kind of nods off. Paul was probably droning on about justification and the power of Christ and all these things, and he falls out the window, okay? Three stories, hits the, hits the ground. Paul goes down, says, get up, and he does, so he raises him from the dead. And then Peter's act here, uh, as we'll see in just a moment, with Tabitha. Go to verse 36. Now, I don't know what they expect Peter to do. Okay, he's not given any evidence that he can raise anybody from the dead yet, but they want him there just as fast as possible. Now, in Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. And, and some will remember Dorcas circles and things like that. Um, there was a woman who worked at the bank. I guess it was Am South then. It's now Regions. And um, her name was Dorcas. And I struck up a conversation with her one day. And I said, you know that uh, in, in, in Greek your, your name is, uh, is Dorcas and Hebrew is Tabitha. And she said, I named my daughter Tabitha not knowing that. Okay, she said, I have any clue of that. And then when, I, when somebody found out my name was Dorcas, my daughter's name was Tabitha, they told me all about that. Oh, I think there might have been a plan there for your life. Okay, so um, this woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. Now, and it came about that at that time she fell sick and died. In Jerusalem, there were certain laws concerning burial, that it had to happen pretty quickly. And these were Jewish laws. But outside of Jerusalem, the laws were a little bit less stringent. Uh, so what has happened here is Tabitha is prepared, her body is washed, but she is not buried yet. And that burial would probably not take place for three days. So it is this section of time in which they run off and get Peter and come and bring him back to where she is. So they find out that, you know, she's dead. Peter comes, and he goes into the place where she is laid out in the upper room, and there we have all the widows around her who are weeping and crying, and, and they're showing um, Peter all the things that, that Tabitha had made for them. This was her gift, so to speak. It was to uh, make these garments for specifically the widows who had nothing. And she would do this, and, and her acts of kindness and charity abounded. 
So she had this reputation of somebody who would simply give from her heart, who would do these things above and beyond what was considered just the norm. And this was who she was, and this was her gift. So Peter sends all of these, these crying ladies out of the room so that he is alone with Tabitha. It's this kind of reminiscent of uh, Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. Uh, it's kind of a similar thing. Peter kneels down, he prays, and says, Tabitha, arise. What do you think went on at that moment? Now, it, it doesn't elaborate on any of this. But what was the look on her face? I, I, well, there's no evidence that she had been taken into heaven, but we know that at the moment of death, you'll be with me in paradise today. That's what Jesus says. So what went on in her life? Well, we're just not given that answer. But I, I bet there was some joy because this resurrection happens for a purpose. This bringing her back to life is not just a random miracle that the Lord threw into Peter's life and to Tabitha's life at this moment. It has a very distinct purpose. Okay? Go, to verse, go to chapter 10 of Acts, and we see what the Lord is, in a sense, laying the table for with this miracle. Now, there was a certain man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. Peter stays at Cornelius' house, and in the midst of his devotions, he falls asleep. Never happened to me before, but in the midst of his devotions, he falls asleep and has a dream. And what is that dream? The food comes down, and it is clean, and it is unclean, and the Lord speaks to him, Peter, take and eat. And Peter says, Lord, you're kidding me. I've never been to Big Bob's for ribs, okay? I've never had a Gibson stuffed potato. I've never been out to Randy's and smoked pork, but, okay, I am a good Jewish guy, okay? And I have never eaten anything that I shouldn't have. And the Lord says, take and eat. And the meaning of this dream is that these things that divided people for so long, these food laws, this, this, uh, the, the Jewish customs and things like that, they no longer are barriers to the things of the gospel. There's no longer Jew or Greek, free or slave, male or female. We are all one in Christ. And the call upon Peter's life and then also upon Paul is to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And this is so radical. Now, the gospel has made it to the Gentiles in select areas. Now there is a major thrust of evangelism geared right to the people that the Jews just simply don't like. Remember, they were so glad, the Jewish male's prayer, Lord, I thank you I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. They hated Gentiles. They were dogs. Now they're going to take the saving message of Christ to them. Okay? So this is pretty radical, and he has to go back to Jerusalem and tell them that the Lord has given, them, given him this dream and given the message to the church now that our evangelistic effort needs to go to the Gentiles. And along with that message, now if I come, imagine you're the Jerusalem council, and I'm Peter, and I come back to you and say, the Lord's told me we need to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And you go, I don't like the Gentiles, and I don't think God likes them either. But if I come back to you and say, you know, here's Tabitha, who was dead. 
And the Lord raised her up as a sign to confirm the power of the gospel message. And now he has given me this dream that says, take it to the Gentiles. Your attitude might be a little bit different. Remember what happened in all the area of Lydda when Aeneas was healed? Many, many believed. The same type of thing happens with the raising of Tabitha. Many, many believe. So news of the resurrection of Tabitha just spreads throughout the land and lives are changed. Now look here at the verse 34, just as an aside. It, it's not expanded upon, but it's something that we all should, should know. And it came about that he stayed many days in Joppa with a certain tanner, Simon. A tanner was a guy who worked with hides. Hides were dead things. Dead things were unclean to the Jews. So for Peter to stay in a tanner's house is already beginning to break down the barriers that divided the Jews and the Gentiles. So Peter is already beginning to live out what is yet to be said to him in chapter 10. Now let's remind ourselves, who is this vehicle for the healing power of through, of Jesus Christ, this vehicle that the Lord uses. It's Peter. Peter had spent his life before Christ as a fisherman. And Jesus comes to him and says what? I will make you a fisher of men. Okay. Luke tells us that on the day of his calling, Jesus says, put your nets over here. And he does, and the catch is immense. It's immense, and his life is forever changed. But remember a couple things about Peter. He had some real growing to do. Peter's confession. This was a great time where the Lord revealed to him who Jesus Christ was. Jesus says, and who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And that was great. It could only come from the Lord. And Peter is so jazzed about that. He is so pumped up about it. He says, oh, Lord, I'll die for you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Okay, Peter's pride was so pumped up in this confession that the Lord had used him that he got the best of him. So Peter is up and Peter is down. Peter is up. He's following Christ. He's the only one who follows Christ after he has been betrayed and on his, his trials. And he's kind of lurking in the shadows. And what happens? Some of those people around the courtyard come up to Peter and say, weren't you with Jesus? And he says, no, no, I wasn't with Jesus. And then that scary servant girl comes up and says, yes, he was one of them. He says, no, no, I don't know the guy. Three times he denies Christ and then the cock crows. If the Lord can use this guy, he can use people like me and people like you. Because none of us are perfect. We're all up and down. We've got moments where we're incredibly brave and we're incredibly uh, forceful for the things of Christ. And other days where we're cowering in the corner, we just don't have the guts to do it. But yet the Lord uses the likes of us. Now once the gospel is out, once the gospel is, is, is there before us, the only thing that can stop it is if we don't do anything with it. The only thing that can stop the spread of the gospel is if we put it in our pocket and hide it away. If we fail to declare the truth of Jesus Christ. Look at the life of Dorcas. Christianity is not just about the eternal things. It's about the practical things of everyday life, too. She was known for these great gifts and her compassion and her in her ministry and the passing of her life was missed by many and mourned by many. 
Christianity is not just a vehicle for eternal life, it is a vehicle for a changed life and therefore a changed world. Now think of the world before Christianity showed up. Ladies, you had very few rights, not much more than cattle. You were owned by your husbands, okay? There was no, there were no orphanages before Christianity came along. Children who were not wanted were simply pitched in the street and left to die, whether they were infants or older. Remember, a Roman father had absolute control over his household. If at any time I did not like one of my children, I just pitched them out and they were gone. It wasn't until Christianity came along that these were cared for. Lepers, the same way. They were called to live outside of the city. They were not able to have human contact. It wasn't until Christianity came along that real ministry to leper communities and colonies began. There were no disaster relief funds. It wasn't until Christianity came along that offerings were collected for those in need. It wasn't until Christianity came along that Paul goes out and collects these things for those back in Jerusalem who are in dire straits. Christians went looking for those in need. They went out of their way. Why? Because the grace of Jesus Christ had changed their lives. Action and sacrifice is nothing more than biblical faith. Action and sacrifice is nothing more than biblical faith. It is how we live out what the Lord has done in our lives. This is the most generous nation in the world. We know that. We've talked about this before. And outside of the anomaly of Utah, which is full of Mormons, and they have written basically written into their uh, articles of faith a, a 10% right off the top. That's their norm. Outside of Utah, the states with the highest church attendance give the most money away. The states with the lowest church attendance give the least amount of money away. We all want to see the poor helped. We all want to see the world changed. But it is those who are believers, who are willing to act and to sacrifice above and beyond anybody else. And we don't do that to earn our way into heaven. We don't do that to make ourselves right before God. We do it because we have been changed. And the Lord calls us to change the world for him and his purposes and his glory. He is real and he calls us to something so radical that non-believers just don't understand it. Okay, let's face it. If, if, if I'm not a believer, why would I devote time to this? Why would I take a beautiful Sunday morning and come and sit for an hour and a half? Why would I take a portion of my income and give it away to somebody who I don't know or to some cause that I really don't, am not tied to? We do it because of what Christ has done in our lives. He has changed us, and we believe that this is not simply a dead book. This is a dead book. This is the power of God unto salvation. He calls us to live it and to preach it and to demonstrate it in all that we do. And he gives us the power to do it. So let's pray. Lord, you came upon Peter here in these two events, and they are... They're individuals, and their lives were forever changed. This Aeneas, who who had been paralyzed for these eight years, in an instant he's up and moving. Many believed because of that. 
And here you demonstrate your grace and your power in Peter's life once again, in the raising of Tabitha. And we see how her life was different and this great loss in the community. And Peter comes and calls her out of the grave. And she is alive. And many believe. But you're also preparing the church for what is next. You're demonstrating your power and reminding them that you are the God who can raise the dead. Nothing is too great for you to do. The saving of the Gentiles will be easy compared to that. Lord, you call us to action and to service because that's simply what faith is about. The presenting of the gospel, the living out of the things of Christ in our daily lives, having hearts of compassion, going above and beyond what is expected. These are the things that are the norm for believers. Now, Lord, you don't say that they'll always be easy. You don't say that it will always be something that we, we just love to do and, and gather joy from it. Our joy comes from obedience to you. Sometimes action and sacrifice.